Hey everyone, this is Caleb and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. I am so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I am honored to be joined by Scott McKnight to talk with him about his brand new book, Revelation for the Rest of Us. A prophetic call to follow Jesus as a dissonant disciple. Now, so much of what we do here in the Learner's Corner is based on uh, what <laughs> on learning, and today we're going to be learning about a subject, um, particularly you know for followers of of Jesus, which is um, it, which can be just very mysterious, and that's the Book of Revelation, and so. Whenever I found out about this book, I really wanted to dive into it and, you know, talk with Scott about it. And so here we are today. And so uh, if you have been listening for a while, you know, please uh, subscribe to the podcast. If you enjoy this, if you want to continue to be a lifelong learner, subscribe to my newsletter to where I uh, just give out all the different things that I'm learning about. And you can go to the show notes for those things as well. Now, let me tell you uh, a little bit about Scott, and then we are going to jump right into the podcast. So Scott McKnight is professor of New Testament at North or Northern Seminary in Lissle, uh, Illinois. He is the author of more than 80 books, including the award-winning The Jesus Creed, as well as The King Jesus Gospel, A Fellowship of Difference, One Life, the Blue Parakeet, and The Kingdom Conspiracy. He maintains an active blog at www.christianitytoday.com slash Scott McKnight, and that's Scott with one T. And he and his wife, Kristen, live in the northwest suburbs of Chicago where they enjoy long walks, gardening, and cooking. And I really enjoyed this book. There's uh, there's so many takeaways, which I'll get into, you know, in the conversation and afterwards. And so without any further wait, here is my conversation with Scott McKnight. Well, Scott, it is good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Well, thank you. Very good to be with you, Caleb. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to talk a lot about your uh, brand new book, which you have uh, written and co-authored, uh, Revelation for the Rest of Us, which is just a fascinating read. I enjoyed going through it and love uh, and just very, very much looking forward to the conversation. Um, and I thought it might be interesting to start with, do you remember the first time that you started reading Revelation or came across some of the ideas in Revelation? I do remember, and uh, <laughs> I don't read it the same way anymore. Yeah. But I was, was yeah. a high—I was a high school senior. Yeah, and um, I had a, a youth pastor who was very influential uh, on me and my wife, Chris. We were both high schoolers together, and um, or we grew up together. Basically, um, he was really into Revelation. He was a dispensationalist, and he had strong opinions and. And he gave to me a book by Salem Kurban called A Guide to Survival. Now, I think that shows up in this book. Mm -hmm. um, I've told this story so many times in my classes. Um, and and it, was a it was a book written for people who didn't get raptured, and they discovered themselves in the tribulation. And this was a manual to help them explain what was going on. Yeah. And it was fascinating. 
And I read the book of Revelation, and I read it hard uh, as a high school student, a senior, in my King James Version, uh, Schofield Bible. And then when I was in college, I took a course. I, I, I tried to take a course on the book of Revelation, but my professor wouldn't let me in the class. He made me do an independent study because I. he said, you've read too much about this for the rest of the college class. So <laughs> he said, it'll end up being a conversation between you and me. And um, and I read a number of books in college about this, and I became convinced of a post-trib rapture. But then uh, when I was in seminary, I found lots of people who were post-tribbers. Um, but it wasn't a topic. I wasn't doing uh, eschatology studies. I became a Matthew specialist, did my PhD. When I came back, I taught the Synoptic Gospels quite a bit for many years, uh, 12 years. And uh, when I came to the book of Revelation, I, I, not to the book, to Matthew 24 or Mark 13, mm -hmm. I was teaching then. I had become a preterist in some sense. So I, I was just talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Then Tom Wright's book comes along and kind of sets this in stone for many people. So that's been a little bit of my story with the book of Revelation, but I didn't ever teach it as a class until just a few years ago. And mm -hmm. Cody Matchett was my graduate assistant at the time. Yeah. And he's an exceptional scholar. He's doing a PhD now in Australia. And uh, I said, Cody, let, let's work on this together. And he started doing things. I said, let's write this book together. Mm -hmm. So he was doing all kinds of really serious work. And it was really fun to work with him. So we put this stuff together. And I tried to write it up over the next year after we taught. I started... We finished teaching the course in December, and by January, I was already writing a draft, and it, and I just kept uh, cranking out sections, and then I'd send them to him, and he'd send me comments and change things, and before long, we had a book. So, Yeah. What initially drew you to Revelation whenever you first really started digging into it? Well, as a high school kid, I was driven by speculation and belief that the—, the uh, the rebirth of Israel as a nation uh, was mm -hmm. a fulfillment of the fig tree promise in Mark 13. Well, yeah. Uh, then I became convinced that that's a misreading of the entire passage. So it was the study of Jewish apocalyptic literature, my understanding of how apocalyptic and prophetic literature works, uh, books by, let's say, book by G.B. Caird called uh, Biblical Language and Imagery, which has an amazing section on apocalyptic and, and prophetic literature. Uh, those were sort of the decisive influences. So when Tom Wright's book, the New Testament, the people of God came out in, uh, I don't know, it had to be about 1991 or something like that. I, when I read it, I thought, yeah, this is, this is pretty much what I believe already. So he was a student of GB Caird. So I think both of us were influenced by Caird. Mm. You know, one of the things that I was curious to, you know, ask you about is just thinking about my own experience with Revelation and like growing up with it and like very much having this mindset of, you know, the rapture and everything. As I was reflecting and reading through the book, I just noticed for myself of how much fear I had over like being left behind. Yeah. And I would just be curious to hear like your thoughts on 
on like just that perspective, even what you were talking about, about the speculation of how much fear is associated with that approach to viewing Revelation. Well, I grew up with dispensationalism, and occasionally we'd have someone at our church who'd come in and preach on prophecy. I don't think our my pastor at the time was much of a preacher about prophetic literature. I'm sure he probably was pre-trib, but I don't know. I don't remember him being distinct on that. But we'd have people come in. So if I found myself at home, my parents, I lived in a very safe community. And I often did things in the evening. I just got on my bike and went anywhere I wanted. And, you know, if I came home and my parents, if everybody in the house was gone, I could think, holy mackerel, the rapture came. And I missed it, you know, because I knew my next door neighbors weren't going because they were Catholics and didn't go to church and stuff like that. So that was kind of, that's an ironical statement. Um, but at yeah. any rate, um, I, and then when I was in high school, we watched, I think it was, uh, there's a famous movie. Uh, it's not, it's way before we're left behind thief in the night yeah. that, that really did instill people with fear and it provoked a lot of people to take their faith seriously. It provoked people to make a decision for Jesus, you know, at some level, become a Christian. But it was, I mean, I think it was totally wrong. I think it's just a complete misreading of Revelation in the Bible's a sense of prophecy. But Caleb, you're exactly right. There was a lot of fear, um, fear of the rapture, fear of judgment, fear of the tribulation, fear of God taking out wrath on us. And uh, that right there, um, I think, fails to understand how prophetic literature works. Yeah. Talk to me about how prophetic literature is is intended to work because yeah. like, yeah, yeah, just go ahead. Well, I think the say. big thing to understand, I mean, prophetic literature and apocalyptic literature are not identical, but they one bleeds <laughs> into the other. And then let's say prophecy bleeds into apocalyptic and apocalyptic goes way outside what prophecy ever was doing. But as a general mm -hmm. rule, prophetic literature, prophecy works with two things. It, uh, it critiques the present and promises the act of God in the future that will establish justice and peace. To establish justice and peace, injustices and non-peace have to be disestablished. So that's the side of judgment, but it's not punitive uh, re retribution. That's not what's going on. Rather, it is the elimination of evil and even the disciplining of people or systems or countries or whatever you want to call it to take God more seriously and to turn their lives over to the way of God in this world. Um, and so any kind of discussion of prophetic literature, apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation, that doesn't start with discerning the present and analyzing, let's say, current political corruptions is misreading the books. That's fundamental to prophetic literature. A prophetic literature and apocalyptic literature work like this. They are actually predicting something that's within the author's lifetime. They're not predicting 2,000 years down the road, all right? Mm -hmm. If something happens 2,000 years down the road that sounds like that, that's cool, uh, but that's <laughs> not what they were doing. And 
it um, um it sort of says the the next the next big event in God's timetable can be understood as the last event. Now that is a very crucial hermeneutical category. So Isaiah, whoever you want to pick in the Old Testament, the prophets, Jesus, Jesus seems to be talking about 70. Well, I'm convinced he's talking about what happened in 70 AD. Attached mm -hmm. to his predictions of what occurred in 66 to 73 AD, notice that seven years, attached to that seems to be images of the final kingdom. That's how prophetic literature worked. The next event is the end event. But when the next event doesn't lead to the end, the next event will lead to the end event, which if that doesn't, you see, it just goes on and on. So yeah. it pushes the final days up against the next event to get people to see the significance of what's about to happen, that this will be the act of God in this world that we need to take seriously. So something like that. Yeah, I'd love to hear from you. What are some other ways to which we just read Revelation wrong? You know, you're talking yeah. about the speculation. We're talking about viewing it just in the future. What are some other ways that yeah, I haven't just tend to I, read? It I haven't said much about speculation. It's it's all over the book. Yeah. Um, the dis yeah. the dispensational classic conservative, um, and dispensationalism has a lot of meanings, and there are very nuanced views about it. I'm aware of that, but that's not what people in the church believe. And I wrote the book for people in the church. Um, the, um, they, they, here, here's the speculation approach in a nutshell. They're trying to figure out who in the modern world corresponds or fulfills who in the, in the book of revelation. So it's sort of who in the modern world fills, fulfills, what image or what figure in the book of Revelation. So when I was in high school, it was all about Russia and communism, and Gog and Magog were Russia, and it was the rebirth of the state of Israel. So therefore, what about Khrushchev? Well, he died. What about Gorbachev? Well, he had a birthmark. That could be the mark of the beast. What about Henry Kissinger? He seems to be a compromiser. Then what about all this, these nations that are gathering together in the European Union? That could be fulfilling some kind of state, you know, all the states coming together. Uh, what about the Roman Catholic Church? So they're always talking about these things. And, Caleb, this is what I tell my students all the time. This is what I've been convinced for 40 years about. They're always wrong. Every time these people have been wrong. And at some point, you have to ask the question, if you're always wrong, maybe you should reconsider what you're doing. And yeah. and I think I think the oddest thing about this, the irony of it all, whatever, the paradox of it all, is that many times those people had their finger on a critical figure in the world who could be an antichrist figure, a beast figure, or who could be, you know, some some person opposed to the ways of God. And that is really good political discernment, but it's not a fulfillment of a prediction in the book of Revelation. And when you turn it into the speculation approach, you ruin the book. When you use the as a manual for political discipleship, you begin to discern corruption in the, in the world of politics as a way for us discerning 
what we can be as witnesses to the way of the lamb in the world, something like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk more about, like, we've talked about, like, how we can view it wrong. Let's go to, like, to the inverse of it. Of, like, what is a proper, and I know that we've touched on some of this, but yeah. I'd love for you to just elaborate even more. How how to view Revelation, what does Revelation mean for us today? Yeah. Well, the first, let, let me just try to give some points. I don't know if I've ever, yeah. I haven't been quite asked this question, but I'm thinking I got a new angle on something. All right, the, yeah. the first thing is understand that the book was written to seven churches in the first century. My, my pen's not working, all right? It's a first century mm -hmm. document. There are seven churches mentioned in Revelation 2 through 3. Mm -hmm. The book was written for those people, okay? So we have to anchor this text in the first century. Rome is the empire. Um, and we have to pay attention to Rome's impact in the church. So first century document. The second thing is, I think we have to understand the need for imagination. The book of Revelation is filled with images. It is not predicting seven-headed beasts. Nobody is going to be fooled by something with seven heads. And I don't know if you, you're not old enough to know this. Tim LaHaye wrote a commentary on Revelation in, in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And in it, he had an artist draw all the images in the book. And they were just grotesque, weird, black and white. It wasn't even very good art, but it was, uh, and I remember thinking, oh, th this can't be anything significant. So he's drawing what the text says. Okay, that's fair. But uh, when you see the image, it doesn't bother you. Um, so I think we need to let those images, let's say a dragon chasing a woman and spewing water out like a river to flood places. Well, you can't you can't think of that happening in Nebraska, you know. I mean, that's that you're mis yeah. you're misreading it when you're doing that. Um, so, uh, you have to use your imagination and that, that means letting the images take you where they're designed to take you. And part of this is baptizing our understanding of these images in the ancient world rather than in the modern world. So we have to understand how dragons worked in the ancient world. We have to, under, you know, and it's connected to the python, the snake. It's, it's really interesting stuff. Um, and I tell my students all the time, I tell people who listen to me talk about Revelation, it's more like Lord of the Rings and Where the Wild Things Are by Morris Sendak than it is like a newspaper predicting things. Mm -hmm. And if you have an artistic sensibility or some kind of aesthetic of reading of, let's say, fantasy literature, it's not quite fantasy, but something like that, dramatic literature then you'll let these images take you where they go, and there will be um, a level of perception of the image that is exactly what John was doing. So I would say that's the second thing. The third, the third principle that I would use in reading the book of Revelation, and uh, you won't be surprised by this, is I think you have to begin in, in, in Revelation 17 and 18 to understand Babylon until, I mean, if people wait till they get there, they may get so lost in predictive prophecies that they no longer care about the book or 
get scared mm -hmm. by the book. So many people don't even want to read the book of Revelation because of how they've been treated in the church by it, people who preach it. The book of Revelation outlines the categories, sort of describes Babylon, and Babylon is Rome. Babylon is also timeless. And in that sense, Babylon is a historic country that Jeremiah and Isaiah talked about, but it becomes in Jewish literature a trope of tyranny, of dictators, of oppression of the people of God, of persecution, of economic exploitation. And so when John picks up this image of Babylon, of the horror of Babylon, he just starts combining all these images that are at work in the Jewish world, and he creates a character that is like Roma in the city of Rome, um, the goddess, and it becomes a parody, but uh, quite a grotesque one, of, of the exploitive, militaristic, violent, anti-God, pagan, idolatrous city of Rome and its exploitation of the world as it conquers the world and calls it peace of God or peace of Rome, Pax Romana. So I think you have to, you have to begin there in Revelation 17. You can't understand what John is saying to the seven churches in chapters two and three without understanding the significance of Babylon at the end. And then the fourth thing I would emphasize is that the judgments that dominate uh, Romans, uh, Revelation 6 through 16, or you could say all the way through 18, um, are, are not sort of graphic predictions of what's going to happen ecologically when the sun doesn't give its light and when the moon doesn't give its light. You know, then we don't have any photosynthesis and all this stuff. I, I heard all about this, and it was really quite frightening uh, when I was in high school. But those judgments are designed in a very unique and distinctive way of, of, let's say, judging injustice, but at the same time, it is a discipline of God against humans so that they will believe in the way of the Lamb. And one of the distinctive themes of, these, of this book and people who are Christians just don't pay attention to this, but it is remarkable. It's an LOL moment, hashtag LOL. And that is, <laughs> when, you, when you think about it, you know that when John wrote this book to the seven churches of Western Asia Minor, there were not very many Christians. There are seven churches. Let's say Ephesus had four house churches of 25 people. You know, uh, that's a hundred. You, you might have 500 to a thousand people who are Christians. But in the book of Revelation, by the end, myriads and myriads of people surround the Lamb and worship the Lamb. When did this happen? Well, the only timeline left in the book of Revelation is that period of judgments. So that these are sort of timeless events in the history of human, uh, let's say in human history, that are drawing people to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And so by the time the book is over, all these myriads have happened because of these judgments. 
And the other side of these judgments is they disestablish evil, they disestablish injustice, they dis they dis um, they get rid of all the violence and the militarism. The lamb wins not with a sword in his fist, but with a, a sword that is the word of God that comes from his mouth. So they win the world in a sense through the witness to the lamb. So. Those are some of the things that I would say would be, and then I would say, you know, of course, yeah. the goal, the goal of everything is New Jerusalem. And frankly, I think in our world today, we read Revelation, basically chapters 20 and 20 through 22. Hmm. And we read that as pretty anti, un, underwhelming, you know, uh, we'd like to see a better thing than that. But at that time, it was a description of a massive city in which there would no longer be a need for a temple. There would no longer be a need for light because the Son of God and God are, are all you need. And mm -hmm. the goal of the book of Revelation is to say that someday the new Jerusalem will be established by God in this world and all the evil and injustices that people are experiencing, the oppressions, in the present world are going to be eliminated. If people don't want a just world, they don't like the book of Revelation. If they want a just world, this is a beautiful book. Now, you know, there's some violence in this book, but yeah. violence in the book of Revelation is sort of exaggerated and overdone, just like Morris Sendak scared little children uh, by showing them that these evil beasts are things that can be controlled. So I think it's exaggeration, hyperbole, that can lead to a conviction that God is going to bring judgment in this world and disestablish all the injustice. Mm -hmm. Man, there's so much there. I think the first thing I want to go back to is I want to touch on imagination, because as I was going through the book, that's one of the things that I think was, it was, it was very pleasantly surprising yeah. to find in there and i would just love to ask because i think it was surprising because imagination i i don't feel like it's talked about yeah, a lot yeah. as it pertains to our faith but can you talk about even you know in the context of revelation and even broader than that yeah. like why is it so important for us as followers of christ and how imagination yeah, plays yeah. into that it's really good caleb this is very important some people really devalue imagination like like it's emotional or something. Now, uh, the book, the, the Bible is filled with imaginative vision. All the prophets, it's just filled with this. And all these images stir the imagination. So to me, imagination paints an alternative world to the world in which we live. It describes that world. Sort of the way the Pavensi children in the Chronicles of Narnia enter into Narnia through this wardrobe door. And when they get through the back of that wardrobe and they find Mr. Tumnus and all that sort of stuff, um, they experience this reality. And children, when they're, I remember my daughter reading uh, the volume one, I guess it was, when she was a six-year-old in Cambridge, England. She reads this book and she says to me, when she puts it down, have you ever been to Narnia, Daddy? And I said, yes. And she said, no, you haven't. I said, Laura, you were just there. It's in the imagination. But 
you go into that world and you begin to see a new world. And then you get plopped back out into the through the wardrobe and it's back to reality in this crazy old house. Um, and that's that's what imagination does. It electrifies our it electrifies us to imagine and to see a different world. And then when we land back in the outside the wardrobe, back inside the world, whatever you want to call it, uh, we are new people who begin to try to live in a different way. So there's an emotion of hope about about imagination that stirs us to think. Imagination in apocalyptic and prophetic literature provides courage for people. When they begin to think, when, when you are oppressed, when you are systemically excluded from culture and society and status and money and power, and you catch the imaginative vision of justice in the future world, it gives you more courage to work for it. That's what revelation does. It stimulates courage. Um, the other side, I think, of imagination is that it ignites the mundane. So mm. one, of the, one of my favorite books ever, reading experiences, was the first time I read The Last Battle, I think it's called, by C.S. Lewis, right? Yeah. And the trees, yep. the trees were clapping. Well, I love uh, to go for walks in nature. I like trees. Um, I like birds. I like ducks. Uh, we have sandhill cranes now in our neighborhood, uh, not too far from us. And I heard them flying over the house today. We heard them on our walk. Um, I think that we can be attached to an, a world, uh, to the natural world through imagination in a way that trees come alive, that the animals come alive. And we begin to see in the animals the sort of characteristics that show up in the Lord of the Rings, that show up in the Chronicles of Narnia, and whatever fantasy-type literature that a person likes. And suddenly we, we see in these characters possibilities that we never saw before, and it, it electrifies the mundane. But the other thing is that um, I, I think, and this is attached to courage, is it comforts the oppressed. It comforts those who suffer to know that God eventually is gonna is gonna drop. Um, and these and when he drops, when God drops in our world, some things are gonna happen that are gonna end the injustices. And I don't believe that that will mean, that we just sit back and wait for them to happen. I really do believe that apocalyptic imagination stimulates us not only to hope for the future, but to work in the present for that imagined future, because we see in that imagined future possibilities in our present world. And anybody who reads the book of Revelation who doesn't have imagination is, is going to fail the book. And think about it this way. The book of Revelation was not given as a book to these seven churches. It was read aloud to these seven churches. I don't know how many readings it took to get through it, but my guess is it was a two or three or four readings. And, and of course, in the ancient world, people could sit and listen to someone read quite well and fall asleep like we would as well. But as that book was read aloud, 
it was performed by the person who read it rather than the way we read scripture uh when you get lay people to read scripture in church and they kind of stumble over how to pronounce Melchizedek, you know, uh, Melchizedek. Well, they don't know how to pronounce things, and they stumble through it. But that first century, they performed it. And there are people who would say that whoever performed the book of Revelation in all seven of these churches had the book memorized and performed it and ad-libbed and, and did extemporaneous stuff as they were speaking based upon how the audience was responding. And they knew when to emphasize something. They knew when to slow down. They knew when to speed up. They knew when to get louder, when to go softer. Um, all that stuff took place. And the people there listening to these words were just seeing these visions, a dragon. So they weren't reading it on a, on a page with a, with a Bible with cross references in the middle. Uh, you know, with beautiful translation and little study notes and devotional thoughts plugged into sidebars. They were just sitting there listening for the first time, just imagining, wow, this is going to happen. How is this going to lo uh, look? What what will happen? But we know Rome is going to be defeated, and we know the injustices are going to end. And they would have been clapping at times and amening. The first century audiences didn't sit there like Episcopalians and Anglicans. They sat there and cheered and asked questions. What do you mean by that? And all this sort of thing was going on in that first century. So that's a little bit on imagination. That's great. I'd be curious, what are, your, uh, what are you using your imagination on right now? Or what are you imagining or wondering oh, about right now? Um, well, frankly, it has to do with my, my seminary. We've, uh, mm -hmm. Our president has resigned due to allegations and um, a lot of negative publicity. So I'm imagining what our seminary is going to be like in the next iteration of the seminary. And, and will we be able to establish the kind of culture we had before this president, before all these mm -hmm. stories have come forward? Are we, are we going to have a reduced seminar. I'm asking all these questions. It's it's disappointing yeah. and discouraging. And at the same time, uh, I think, you know, I have a relationship with my students and they're not going away. Uh, yeah. And um, that's what matters in, in my yeah. in teaching. So I imagine uh, that we will have a more diverse seminary, that we will, we will, you know, try to do things that bring in justice. Uh, so those are the kinds of things I, yeah. I think I'm thinking about. And yeah. and I'm Whenever and I'm cheering through... for the Cleveland Guardians to win the World Series. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Let, I'm I'm imagining that too. <laughs> um you know, whenever whenever you are going through um, you know, I think you mentioned earlier, just a time of chaos, like a time of just great uncertainty. What comforts you the most in the book of Revelation? Well, I mean, I think that New Jerusalem, to know that, well, that mm -hmm. God is in control, that the way of the Lamb is the true way, that the Lamb is going to conquer evil, uh, and that there's going to be a New Jerusalem where there will be peace and safety and justice and love and wisdom. That's, mm -hmm. you know, that that brings me a lot of comfort to know this yeah. this nonsense is going to end. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I want to go back to, you know, you touched on Babylon. Can you kind of tease out like what Babylon can look like in the current day or even yeah. like, I know that you te- in the book, you talk about what it looks like and some of the characteristics of it. Can yeah. you kind of tease that out a little bit? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I, I try to impress upon readers of the book of Revelation is to read that book carefully, to read those chapters in chapter 17 and 18 carefully, and just list the major characteristics of Babylon. And these these are the ones that uh, Cody and I agreed on, seven of them, that it is anti-God in the sense that it doesn't believe in the God of Israel. It doesn't believe in the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father. Opulence. There is so much extravagant opulence in Rome in the first century. Um, the emperors, all the taxes came to the emperors. So they they have everything. And some of the emperors of the first century were just extraordinarily opulent. And others were sort of, um, you know, disciplined, like Julius Caesar. Of course, he's pre, pre-empire. Uh, he belongs to the so-called Republic. But opulence is a major characteristic. A third one is that it was murderous. And the and what I mean by murderous is that they killed anyone who opposed them. The Roman emperors were vicious in capital punishments. Some of them almost, if you disagreed with them in the forum, they they put you to death. Image was so important, and everywhere you go, even in archaeological sites today, in, say, Ephesus or Philippi or Athens, uh, to, to a lesser degree, uh, in the public setting, Corinth is a little bit more stripped bare, so you can see what things were like. There was there were image in, in, in architecture. There were gods. Um, there were... The, the height of the bima or the platform for justice in Corinth is stunning of the judge sitting there that high, rendering judgment on someone uh, standing before it. So image was fundamentally important. It was militaristic. Rome is known for its armies. And the only way you could become an emperor is to ha- is basically to have had great success in the military and then to um, bring your soldiers into the circuit of into the circle of your governance, and so without serious military surrounding, you could not, you know, you couldn't control the empire, and the empire was controlled by the military and violence. And this is uh, another image. Another one is economic exploitation. In the in Revelation 17, you have all these boats filled with cargo coming to Rome up the Tiber River. Of course, it doesn't talk about the Tiber River, but they're all to Rome. Everything from the empire seems to be drawn to Rome. That's the exploitation. Instead of serving the, the countries, the countries serve them. That's why Jesus says what he says. And then a, a, a distinctive characteristic. Um, is arrogance, you know, no one can do anything to me. The woman of Revelation 17 says, I'm basically uh, invulnerable. And um, 
I, I think that these characteristics are the characteristics of power and pride and ambition in all of military or all of political rule. And in the church, we see the same kinds of problems, is the abuses of power, because power can be so intoxicating. So to me, mm -hmm. uh, if John were looking at the United States today, he would focus on, on well, he would say a decline in faith, in religion, for, for sure. But John would see opulence and capitalistic exploitation of workers in the world and Americans with so much stuff. I read a book one day. Uh, I got it on, I got it in my iPad. And I don't even have an iPad anymore, so I don't even know where that thing could be. <laughs> but that, um, it was a book about American uh, and possessions and stuff. And I think the number was something like this. 90% of garages in the United States have 400 square feet of boxes of storage. Now, this is this is alarming. It was, we don't have enough yeah. room in our houses for our stuff. And now we have these storage buildings growing up everywhere where people are putting their junk that they can't put in their house. And this is just uh, opulence that I think John would say this is serious. Uh, our military is exploitive. It is powerful. We have the greatest, most powerful, I don't even want to call them great, weapons in the world that can destroy countries, destroy cities with one bomb. And uh, that's the way of Rome, is to have those kinds of weapons that we use to build our strength in the world. Um, Ronald Reagan's motto, uh, other than his Star Wars theory, was peace through strength. That is Rome. That is not yeah. Christianity. It is not peace through strength. That's not how you bring peace. You bring peace through justice. And then I think that uh, economic exploitation would be a very serious accusation in our world today in the United States uh, that we can discern as we read the book of Revelation. It speaks to us. And I think the I think everything in Revelation 17 and 18 speaks to to our culture today as well. So um, I'm no um, make America great again kind of guy. I, I just think that we as Christians are called to follow the way of the Lamb, and anything that isn't the way of the Lamb, we we need to be against. We need to we yeah. need to live that way. And if they're going to live that way, we're not going to live that way. So we choose to resist as dissident disciples rather than as conforming disciples. Yeah. And I do want to talk about that in just a minute, yeah. but I do want to touch on one more thing about Babylon yeah. real quick. Yeah. Um, you, you have this uh, quote in the book and you say, uh, wherever the gospel goes, Babylon's false teachers arrive with fresh or with fresh distortions and I was just curious, and it just got me thinking, I would love to hear, are there any, like, fresh distortions that you haven't touched on or maybe want to reiterate um, for what Babylon has done to distort things? Well, today? no, I've, I've touched on those themes, but um, uh, like, like the health and wealth gospel is a distortion of 
of the gospel because not everybody's going to be rich. You can't have everybody rich. You know, that's not the way it works. Um, and it's a fresh distortion of Babylon's economic exploitation. I don't believe in a zero-sum game, but I do believe that if that not everybody can have massive houses. It's not gonna it's not gonna be this way. We don't have that kind yeah. of capital in our world. So yeah, there are there are Babylon will always be working in our churches to create distortions. You know, look at your church's budget. How much of that money goes toward the poor in your communities? You know? And yet we have this distortion that we're doing the work of God, and that means the pastor should have a bigger house or a lot bigger income, six figures, you know, uh, seven figures I've heard for some pastors. And mm -hmm. that is a distortion of, that's what Babylon does to church budgets. You know, what does, the, what does Babylon do to church worship teams? What does Babylon do to sermons? What does Babylon do, do to church buildings? Now, all these things need to be asked. Man, those are some very pointed and great questions, yeah. Scott. Uh, you got, I mean, you just got me thinking even more. Um, the other thing that I would love to have you touch upon, and then I do want to talk about the being dissident mm -hmm. disciples as well, is the comparison that you talk about, or what you talk about is um, one, of, one of the biggest things that Christians in the Roman world had to lose was their social standing mm -hmm. in that time. And it just hit me so much because I just see the comparison to even today, and it's becoming even more and more so of um, just Christians losing their social standing and having that to risk and having that fear of that. Can you touch on just the comparison between the two and even what that was like in uh, in Roman culture? I mean, you, I, you would say in the ancient world, especially in Rome, in the city of Rome, I, you know, the outlying villages and cities are not going to all be identical to Rome, but Corinth was. That was a place that was I want to be I want to be Rome type place. Is is status is everything. You dressed mm -hmm. according to your status. You ate according to your status. You lived according to your status, and you protected your status. You didn't ever make fun of yourself. Uh, to make fun of yourself was to degrade your status. But they were status conscious and heavy. And what happened was when they began to follow Jesus is they realized they were following someone who was crucified. And you talk about status degrading. Nothing is more degrading in the first century world than crucifixion. It was Rome's method of utter humiliation. And then they begin to follow Jesus, and these people begin to lose their status in society. And that's where John steps in and says, this is the way of the Lamb. If we follow Jesus, we will not be following the way of Rome, which means we're going to be excluded. But we become witnesses to the Lamb in the situation of being opposed by the way of Rome. And I know, I know we're getting near the end here, uh, but to me, the, uh, the discipleship message of the book of Revelation is that believers 
are called to be dissidents to the way of Rome. So they see Babylon and they say, that's not how we live. And they become subversive of that way by the way they live, by the way they witness, and by the way they worship. They worship mm -hmm. the Lamb. They worship God. They don't worship the emperor. They don't worship the gods of, of the world, of the land, of the land, wherever they are. They don't worship Roma. Uh, they don't worship Apollo. They worship Jesus. They worship the Father, the Son, the Spirit. And that worship gives them the courage to be subversive. So throughout the book of Revelation, there are these songs of worship. Um, they're like African-American spirituals that are songs that simultaneously subvert the way of Rome. And that is the message of discipleship. Discern Rome, or discern Babylon, and become a dissident of Babylon as you witness to the way of the Lamb and worship God. So that's sort of the discipleship message. Yeah. Can you tease out like what what the worship can look like because again part of it probably is singing but worship can be so much more than yeah. that I'm just teasing that out of how that looks like for following the lamb um the worship is to understand who is ruling it is to ascribe glory and praise to god it is to take a posture of a person who's on their knees, raising their hands, worshiping this person. And at the same time, it draws people together to worship together and leads them at the same time to live in the world in a way that respects that, um, that worship experience. But I think it's at the same time, worship is countering the gods of the world. So it's subversive at a, a really serious level. To worship God is to be a dissident world. To worship the Lamb is to be a dissident. It draws us into living in the way of the Lamb when we worship God properly. That's a good question. It's a good question. It's a big issue in the book. Yeah. Well, I know that there, there's so many other things that we could talk about in the book. Is there anything just top of mind that you want to make sure that we talk about or mention before uh, we end our conversation? Well, Caleb, I think we've covered the big topics. I really do think we have. But yeah. um, I would encourage people to read the book afresh. But um, again, start in chapter 17 and 18 and get a vision for what Babylon is like, and then read the book all over again. And I think it's transformative. Great. Well, Scott, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you and get your book, Revelation, for the rest of us. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Well, um, you know, I buy books on Amazon. So go to your local bookstore <laughs> or go to Amazon or go to Barnes & Noble, however people buy books. But uh, I have a Twitter account, Scott McKnight, 1T and Scott. I have a Substack account. Uh, and... Uh, I'm on Facebook a little bit as well. So I don't pay much attention to Instagram. <laughs> so they can find me that way. Awesome. Well, Scott, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Well, thank you, Caleb, very much. Yeah.
So coming out of that conversation, I think there's two things that have really got me thinking from it and really just from the book in general. And the first one is just imagination of using our imagination to imagine a better world, to imagine the world that you wish you lived in or imagine, imagine what could be possible. And I loved what he said of, of just taking comfort in, in that world of trying, trying to create that world and taking comfort and taking courage in that world and trying to build that world. And, you know, we find that so much of what Jesus did is, um, you know, he would, he would talk about, you know, the kingdom of God and is like this, and he's trying to usher in the kingdom of God. And part of that is just imagining looking at Jesus and imagining what the kingdom of God is like and how we could bring that here. And I think the other thing that it made me think about is just that of Babylon as well. Some of the characteristics that he talks about in there and just realizing that, that that is evident today, that the oppression, the injustice, the exploitation of it and what it looks like in, in, in the power of, of being image image conscious as well and just realizing how how that seeps into our thinking and how that seeps into our our behaviors as well and i think maybe maybe one other thing is just realizing that this is that this book is meant for it was first of all it was meant for the people who john was writing to and it is also uh has applications for us today in terms of Babylon, in terms of the New Jerusalem, and so on and so forth. And so those are some of the things that I'm thinking about from this conversation. If you enjoyed this, you know, please subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to my newsletter where I share all the different things that I'm learning from, from books to movies to music and just a whole wide gamut of many other things. And that's all that I have for today. So I want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you to Scott for joining me on the podcast for a great conversation. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Kayla Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.